Okay, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 43 on your smartphone. If you do not have a smartphone, use your Bible. Genesis chapter 43. If uh, you didn't bring a Bible, we have some Bibles that we'd be glad to pass out. Just slip up your hand. Uh, We have some ushers who have a handful of Bibles right down here. You're going to need it, so slip up your hand if you would like to have a Bible. It's on page 33 if you're using the Bridge Bible, the paperback Bible. In 1968, Donald Drusky got fired from U.S. Steel in Pennsylvania. Believing that he had been grossly mistreated, he brought a lawsuit against U.S. Steel. After 30 years in the courts, or at least trying to get into the courts, it got dropped. And so uh, Drusky decided to file a legal complaint against God. His lawsuit against God reads like this. The defendant, God, is the sovereign ruler of the universe and took no corrective action against the leaders of his church and of his nation for their extremely serious wrongs which ruined the life of Donald S. Drusky, uh, included in his list of defendants were uh, President Ronald Reagan, uh, President Bill uh, Clinton, and George Bush. Um, for damages, Drusky asked for the return of his youth, the skill of a guitarist, the resurrection of his mother and a pet pigeon. Drusky hoped that God would fail to appear in court and that he would win by default. Syracuse, New York court ruled that the case was frivolous and threw it out in March of 1999. Donald Drusky blamed the United States Steel Corporation and God for losing his job and leaving him in unhappy circumstances. Here's a question. Who do you blame for your unhappy circumstances? When things are hard, who gets the blame? People raised in dysfunctional families have a tendency to blame others when, when things go bad. They have, to have a, they have a tendency to shift the blame to someone else. They often have a hard time admitting that they are at fault in their own behavior. In another case, a city dump truck backed into Curtis Gokey's car in Lodi, California in March of 2006. Curtis Gokey, the owner of the car, sued the city for $3,600 for damages done to his car. But guess what? Who was driving the dump truck? Curtis Gokey backed into his own car. The lawsuit was thrown out of court because Curtis Gokey could not sue himself, Curtis Gokey, the driver of the dump truck. Here's the point. Sometimes you and I are our own worst enemies when we shift the blame for the damage we do to someone else. Sometimes we just need to accept our fault and humbly accept the consequences. The great patriarch, Jacob, was a blame shifter. 
he had this tendency when things went wrong to shift the responsibility to someone else, to shift the blame to somebody else. And it was usually somebody in his family. We come to Genesis 43 and uh, in verses 1 through 14. If you follow in your outline, your program, it's um, verses 1 through 14. The current need in verses 1 and 2. Now, the famine was still severe in the land. So, like, we've got to ask the question, what famine? This might be your first time here, and you don't know what famine we're talking about. Let me remind you. Joseph, in the story of Joseph, Genesis 37 through 15, it's just entire, 50. 37 through 50 is the entire story. Joseph interpreted the dream of Pharaoh, and the dream was about seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt and seven years of great famine in the land of Egypt. And Joseph had interpreted that dream. The seven years of abundance have passed. And now we're probably somewhere between two to four years into the great famine. The famine was still severe in the land. Joseph, if you remember, has 11 brothers. And um, if you, earlier in the story, if you remember, Joseph was sold into slavery by 10 of his brothers. When he was 17, he got thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, and went into Egypt, ended in Potiphar's house, then was thrown into prison, interpreted Pharaoh's dream, and got out and became the second most powerful man in Egypt. Verse 2, so when they had eaten all their grain they brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. Um, So Jacob's family, his 11 brothers and their wives and their children, maybe about 70 people now in the family, have eaten the food that the brothers had gotten on their first trip in Genesis chapter 42. Jacob, the father, gave orders for a second time. Go back. Go back to Egypt. They're they're living in Canaan. Go back and buy food. Verses 3 through 5, the reality check. But Judah said to him, the man, the man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. There is an elephant in the room. I'm bringing you up kind of to speed here. The elephant is that concern that Jacob has for his favorite son. Jacob doesn't know Joseph is alive. Benjamin is now the favorite son. Uh, Jacob has been protecting Benjamin. And um, we've got to address this. If you remember, Joseph had asked that the youngest son come back to Egypt. That was his request. The only way you're going to buy food here in Egypt is you come back and you bring the youngest son. So Judah is going to remind his father, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Verse 4, if you will send our brother along with us. So uh, Judah is negotiating with his dad. We will go down and buy food for you, but if you will not send him, we will not go down. Because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Judah has become the... uh, most influential family member. He's becoming a leader. He's speaking for the family. He's speaking, he's standing up against dad. 
And um, he's negotiating, but now he's saying, he's speaking for everybody, we're not going to go unless you do this, Dad. You have to do this. And the blame, verses 6 and 7. Israel asked, Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? Now, okay, we're back. Did you catch the name Israel? Did you see that? Israel asked, Who is that? How did Israel get into the story? Well, God changed Jacob's name to Israel in Genesis chapter 32. And all of a sudden, the Bible is is making this reversal from Jacob to Israel. And there it is. Why did you bring this trouble? Why did you? He's, He's blaming his sons for the predicament he's in, for the pain, for the discomfort that he's in. He's blaming his boys. So now Jacob gets a reply back from his sons. Verse 7, they replied, the man, who's the man? That's Joseph. He is the second most powerful man in Egypt. The man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Uh, Is your father still living? He asked us. "Do Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How were we to know? He would say, bring your brother down here. So the brothers explain what happened. And they're being very truthful and very accurate. Um, when you look at Jacob's dysfunctional family, um, one of the key features of this family and one of the key features of Jacob's life is they, they uh, exist in an environment of complaining. They're complainers. Jacob is a complainer. When the boys get under stress and get into distress, they begin to complain and which i want to remind us of what the apostle paul tells us in philippians chapter 2 we are a little bit further along here there we go thank you here's what uh, philippians what paul tells us do everything without complaining or arguing Uh, this is what god tells us as followers of jesus christ to Um, navigate life and do it without complaining, without being negative, without being critical. Uh, So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. And the Apostle Paul marks out that as followers of Christ, when we can navigate difficult circumstances without blaming everybody else, um, we can shine brightly. Uh, we stand out. We, uh, we can make a difference in our environment when we can uh, navigate life without uh, complaining about our circumstances. You know, is your cuff half full or is it half empty? Do you think about... Uh, what you have and appreciate it, or do you think about what you don't have? 
do you tend to complain about your circumstances? In verses 8 through 10, uh, we have the resolution. Look at verse 8. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, again, Judah takes leadership. Send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. Judah is ready. Judah wants to take action. Judah wants this action to be timely. Verse 9, I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. Interesting here, Judah doesn't blame his brothers. Judah's in distress. Judah's family is facing no food. Judah is not blaming his brothers. He is not blaming God. He is not blaming his dad. And he's not blaming the man, the man back in Egypt. And then verse 10, as it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Time is of the essence essence, for food and for the brother Simeon. The strategy is revealed in verses 11 through 14. Their father Israel said to them, if it must be, then do this. Now think about this. Jacob has been sort of holding his son, protecting his son and blaming his other boys. Not real healthy. And all of a sudden, he has a plan because he's been thinking about this plan all along. This is a pretty well-thought-out plan that Jacob has. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags. Take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm and a little honey, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds, and I think that will grease the skids and everything will work. He's saying take the best best products of the land. This is going to make your appearance and your presentation more acceptable when you arrive in Egypt. Verse 12, take double the amount of silver with you. Now, if you remember, they had taken silver the first time to pay for the food. But it it had been received in Egypt, but just before they left, it got put back into their bags, the bag of food that they were carrying. So they went back with food and their money They didn't know it. They were surprised. Joseph's servant had filled their bags. Now they have to take double the amount, one to pay for the food the first time, and two, a double because they had to pay for the food a second time. Verse 13, take your brother also. See how easy he gives in here? Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. So Jacob gives permission for Benjamin to go on the trip. Now, Benjamin is probably uh, 24, 25 years old by now. So he's not a little kid back home, needs to be protected by dad. Now, look at verse 14. Something kind of unusual happens here. Here's Jacob. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. Now, sadly, just a couple comments here. By the way, Jacob knows the true and living God. Jacob has had a relationship with the true and living God for many years. Jacob has had a firsthand contact with God. In fact, he wrestled with God, the Bible says, earlier. Uh, God spoke to him and God gave him promises about his family, about his greatness, and about his family being blessed. 
Jacob knows God, but he's been kind of in a neutral zone for quite a while. He's kind of been drifting apart from God, and we haven't heard much about God in Jacob's life. And all of a sudden, under stress, sort of in fear of his son's life, he talks about God. And he's really calling out to God. And may God Almighty, that's God all-powerful, grant you mercy. So Jacob calls on his God. And... uh, Then he kind of spoils it at the end. As for me, I'm bereaved. I am bereaved. It's about me. Life is about me. It's sort of like he reaches out to God just for a little bit, and then he comes back and reminds everybody how tough he has it. And he wants his sons to feel guilty about it. You know that feeling? When somebody wants you to feel guilty about their life or their circumstances... Verses 15 through 23, the family lunch plans, and we see the travel. Finally, after 14 verses, we're going to make a trip. So the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver, and Benjamin also, after they negotiated all these things, they hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. That was a, that was a fast trip. It was a few days to get there from um, Canaan going southwest to Egypt. It was a few days travel. They hurried down to Egypt, and they went right to Joseph. Verse 16, the plan. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, Joseph has not seen Benjamin since probably he was a toddler or preschool age, something like that. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his steward of his house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare dinner. They are to eat with me at noon. So Joseph recognizes them from far off, but he doesn't go to them. He doesn't speak to them. He sends his steward as a go-between to mediate and invite them to dinner. The fear factor, verses 17 and 18. The man did as Joseph told him and took them into Joseph's house. And let me just say one more time, Joseph is the governor of Egypt, and he is the most powerful man in all of Egypt except for Pharaoh. And they've just now been invited to his house. Keep in mind, they do not know who Joseph is. They do not recognize his brother. They have not seen him since he was 17. They assume he is dead. They are Hebrew. They have long hair and beards and they wear robes. And Egyptians don't. Egyptians shave their head and shave their face. And uh, Joseph was a teenager, and now Joseph is a very powerful man. And he speaks Egyptian. They do not know this is their brother. Verse 18, now the men were frightened when they were taken to, to his house. They thought we, must, we were brought here because of the silver that was uh, put back into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. So, you know, the brothers are scared to death of Joseph. Uh, they, They fear punishment. They fear discovery. They fear God has found them out. Now, we saw that last week. Look at Genesis 42. Genesis 42. This is from last week. Uh, This is on their way home from their first trip. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother, because of Joseph, because they had 
kidnapped him in 17, thrown him in a pit, and sold him into slavery. Surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw his dis- how, how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. They have fear because of these events. Remember that? We talked about this last week. They feel terrible guilt about this. They are in distress. They are in deep anxiety because of what's happening to them in this crisis. Verse 22, Reuben replied, didn't I tell you, so here's the blame game again from the fam. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? I was smarter than you. You should have done what I said, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an account uh, for his blood. So there's this fear that they're caught. They're going to be discovered. They're un- the truth is uncovered. And then later in the chapter, chapter 42, verse 28, uh, when they discover that there is silver in their uh, backpacks, my silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? We don't hear much about God from them except when they're in trouble and they're afraid. And they're afraid that they're going to get punished. You know, they're not crying out to God for help. They fear God's going to punish them for their past sins. Their explanation, verses 19 through 22. And um, now... They're going to they're sort of defend themselves here. And keep in mind, right now, they've come back to Egypt. They've been invited to uh, Joseph's house, and they haven't been accused of anything, but they're scared to death. Look at verse 19. So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance to the house. Please, sir, they said, we came down here for, uh, the first time to buy food, but at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks, and each of us found his silver, the exact weight, in the mouth of his sack. So we have brought it back with us. We've also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in our sacks. So, you know, they're just pleading with Joseph's servant as if he's going to save their lives. They explain what happened. They don't know how the money got into their sacks. And then verse 23, the unexpected grace. Maybe this should have been the title for the message today, the unexpected grace. Look at verse 23. It's all right, he said. It's all right. All of this fear they have about being punished, it's all right. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, Jacob, has given you the treasure in your sacks. It was God who put the treasure in your sacks. He ordained it. He orchestrated it. Notice what the servant says. I received your silver. It's sort of like, Stamped payment received. I received your silver. It's good. And then he brought Simeon out to them. Simeon's been waiting in prison while the family runs out of food. And now he's released. This is unexpected. Unexpected grace. You know, grace is favor. It's getting something you don't deserve. And this is even God's grace. And I think this is absolutely Amazing. Um, This servant would really uh, forgive them of any debt. 
and then embrace them sort of uh, relationally. It's okay. And then he comforts them. He offers words of comfort. But, you know, they're, they're, not, in a, they're not spiritually tuned in where they're going to receive comfort from God. Uh, your God, the Father, uh, the God of your Father has given treasure in your sex. That's a, that's, that ought to be exciting. That ought to be something to celebrate. And yet, man, they're still afraid. They fear for their lives because of their guilt. Um, but let me just uh, take a side here. Who, who was speaking to those brothers? It was Joseph's steward, Joseph's uh, servant. What's the big deal about that? Well, he's not Hebrew. How does he know the God of Israel? Because in Egypt, they have many gods. They have a God for every day, pretty much. This is the true and living God. How did he learn about the true and living God, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Well, it was Joseph. You remember Joseph had been a chief steward before. Joseph had been the steward of Potiphar's house. Joseph was in charge of everything in Potiphar's household. And that's exactly what this steward has, that same role. Guess who has mentored him? Guess who has instructed him about his responsibilities and how to relate to people and how, how to handle situations? And oh, by the way, how to know God, how to know the true and living God. And this is a follower doesn't say it in the text. I'll just say this is my opinion. This is a follower of the true and living God in Joseph's household. Family conversation, uh, verses 24 through 34. Family lunch conversation preparations, uh, verses 24 through 26. So preparations are made first uh, by the steward of the household. So the steward took the man into Joseph's house, Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet and provided fodder for the donkeys. Second, preparations are made by the brothers. Verse 25, they, the brothers, prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon. They still don't know who Joseph is because they had heard they were to eat there. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house and they bowed down before him to the ground. Did you catch that? They just bowed down to Joseph before the ground. Have you, you remember that? We saw that last week. When the brothers arrived in Egypt, the man of the land was there and 10 of them bowed low to the ground and prostrated themselves before Joseph. You remember Joseph had a dream when he was 17 that all the sheaves and uh, that the sheaves in the field, 11 of them would bow down to them and his sheave would stand up. And his brothers hated him for that dream. And they said, you mean you're going to reign over us? And here it happens again. This time, guess what? Not 10 brothers. Now it's 11 brothers who bow down before him. The conversation starter, verses 27 and 28, he asked them how they were, and they said, and then he said, how is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? Now, we kind of forget sometimes in the story, what are the emotions that Joseph is going for? 
uh, going through. Joseph hasn't seen his dad for probably 24 years or so. You know, and when, when the brothers go back and make a trip, that's months, years, maybe a couple of years at a time happen in the turnaround. And so Joseph really does want to know about his dad. His dad, may, he may have come from a dysfunctional family, but he loves his father. And he wants to know about his dad. They replied, your servant, our father is still alive and well. And they bowed down low to pay him honor a second time. This is the third time it happens overall. And then verse 29, the blessing. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? So, you know, I mentioned this earlier. There, you know, Jacob had two wives and each of the wives had maidservants and all of them became mothers of Jacob's children. Twelve sons, one uh, daughter. Joseph was raised in the home uh, with Rachel, his mother, and Benjamin, his brother. He, it wasn't, he wasn't necessarily around all the brothers all the time. Joseph was one of the youngest. Benjamin is the youngest. By the way, the ten brothers, remember, they threw him into the pit. They sold him into slavery. Benjamin wasn't a part of that. So Benjamin is kind of in a unique place right here. And then the blessing in verse 29, and he, Joseph said, God be gracious to you, my son. He's talking to Benjamin. Joseph blesses his brother, Benjamin. Now this encounter overwhelms Joseph with emotion. Memories come flooding back. Memories of perhaps anger, anger at his brothers, fear, a fear for his life thrown into the pit, headed into Egypt, into slavery, um, sadness, grief, loneliness, interspersed at times with joy. Life is complicated, isn't it? Memories come flooding back and the tears in verse 30. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep and he went into the private room and he wept there. This was such an uh, overpowering experience for Joseph to deal with this and seeing Benjamin after all of these years. And, you know, I don't think there's any simple emotion here. I'm guessing Joseph's emotions are very complicated, but very heavy on his heart. And there's sort of a release right here. And he has to go into a private room. That's one of the amazing things about Scripture, telling the details of a story. I mean, this isn't like hero kind of stuff here that Joseph goes to the room and balls his heart out. But that's exactly what he did. And the scripture records that detail for us. The din dinner party, uh, verses 31 through 34. So jo Joseph gets it all together and he collects his thoughts. And after verse 31, after he'd washed his face, he, he came out controlling himself and he said, uh, 
serve, uh, serve the food. In verse 32, they served um, him by himself. The brothers uh, by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews for that is detestable to Egyptians. Um, This is a pretty unusual, pretty unique predicament here. It's um, Joseph by himself. It's the brothers by themselves. And then it's the Egyptians by themselves. And And the reason is because Egyptians think it's detestable to have fellowship, to share a meal with Hebrews. Joseph is the second most powerful man in the land and the Egyptians won't eat with him. The brothers are clueless of the social protocol in Egypt. They just, I mean, there's Joseph by himself. I mean, he's the man. Whatever he says is good. And Joseph is separated. And there, what, what we have here is uh, we have racial discrimination and social discrimination. Verse 33, the men had been seated before him in order of their ages from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. So this is another unusual part of the meal. Somebody set out name cards at the... I don't know if they had name cards. Somehow, they were supposed to be seated oldest Reuben to the youngest Benjamin. And they looked down the line and... Who knew this? Well, Joseph did. This is kind of a mystery for them. It you know, creates a little, it's a little bit eerie feeling here. Uh, next, a little bit more out of the ordinary, verse 34. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's, so they feasted and drank freely with him. So they had a party. It was good. The eight... Um, very uh, exquisite, exquisite and delicate food from Joseph's table. They had a little wine. They ate to their fill. They had a little party, even though they didn't feel too close to this governor of Egypt. But Benjamin got five times as much at his place as the others. Question, is that favoritism or is that blessing is there a difference is there a reason that joseph has to give equal amounts to the brothers were the brothers lacking anything did the brothers have everything they needed perhaps even more than they needed and yet benjamin didn't need five times but joseph selected him to stand out and to be blessed. Is that okay? Is it okay with you if God sometimes blesses somebody else more than he does you? And he's given you all that you need. Okay, so here, let's talk about some lessons. Let's talk about some lef- lessons. Number one. Remember that God moves at a different pace than you do in resolving issues. This is kind of a reminder of one that we've raised before. We've kind of said it in different words. 
It's just so much a part of the story. We just need to be reminded of it. Remember that God moves at a different pace than you do in resolving issues. Joseph was 17 years old. Remember, he gets sold into Egypt. You keep hearing me say this. Think about the time here. He goes to Potiphar's house. He ends up in jail. He's 30 when he gets out of jail. 13 years pass. And then he goes, uh, becomes uh, Pharaoh's right-hand man. Seven years. So he's at least 37. Two years pass. He's now at least 39. And now maybe he's 41. That's kind of a long time. And God is just now beginning to raise some justice issues in his life and bring balance. God is at work, but it's on God's schedule. Secondly, God uses difficulty in our life to sharpen our focus and, uh, on our need for him. He uses difficulties in our life to sharpen our focus on our need for him. And, you know, Jacob knew God. I, I talked about that earlier. We don't get this in the Joseph story, but if you go back and read about Jacob's life, he knew the true and living God. He had a relationship with him. It's amazing that he drifted away. And now with this crisis, he, comes, he begins to come back and to call on God. Uh, sometimes you drift or, or I drift and sometimes we get under some stress or some distress or some overstress and we recognize, hey, I can't do this alone. God, help me. And that's uh, some of the best words we could ever say is moving back to God and asking God for help and depending on Him and relying on Him. The problem happens is when He helps us and we begin to think, well, I can do it on my own again. And so we just go back into sliding spiritually. Uh, James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials. This is kind of a repeat of a few weeks back. Consider it pure joy when you face various trials. Verse 3, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Friends, we can't become mature unless we go through really hard times. That's just how life is. And God has, you know, you're going to go through difficult things whether you follow Christ or not. You know that? People are going to get sick. People are going to die on you. People are going to lose jobs. There's going to be times when it's hard financially whether you're following Christ or not. The great thing is God uses those things to develop us as followers of Christ. Number three, God may put us in dark places so that we can be a bright light in our environment. God may put us in dark places. Joseph was in a pit. He was enslaved. He was in prison. He was in a dark place for a long time. And then God raised him up. And Joseph shined brightly all through those dark years. And um, Joseph uh, influenced a servant in Egypt to become a true uh, follower of uh, God. And we already talked about how uh, the influence he must have had on his wife and his children who were named with Hebrew names. And Matthew 5.16 is a reminder. Jesus said, in the same way, let your light 
shine before men in dark places that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Uh, what that's about is that people in dark places who don't know Christ see Christ through people like you and they eventually become followers of Christ and worshipers and praise your Father in heaven. And Jesus instructed us that God is seeking true worshipers, John chapter 4. Number four, fourth lesson, deal with your guilt or it will deal with you. And we touched on this last week. Joseph's brother lived in fear and guilt over their sin against Joseph. It caused them great distress. And we have a way as a follower of Christ to deal with guilt. And that is 1 John 1, 9. This is a reminder, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, this is written to Christians. This is written to Christians only. This is not written to non-Christians. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There's a condition. One, we confess our sins. We agree with God and say and own up to our responsibility. This is what I did. This was wrong. Please forgive me. He, that is God, is faithful and just and will forgive us. He can forgive us because Jesus Christ died for you and paid for your sin. And then if you do your part here, confess, he promises an absolute promise from heaven. He will forgive us our sins right now and purify us from all unrighteousness so I can keep my account fresh with God every day. Keep the slate clean. Purify us from all unrighteousness. He can cleanse our guilt. He can purify our guilt. And false guilt is a whole other ballgame. I'm talking about true moral guilt because of sin. Number five, expect conflict in your relationships. Remember, forgiveness is an absolute requirement. Jacob's 12 sons and one daughter and four mothers Two wives and two maidservants had plenty of conflict, if you read through the story of Genesis. And you are going to have conflict in your families, and you have conflict in your marriages, because people are different, and they come at a situation with a different perspective, a different background, different information, and they come up with a different viewpoint. Now, their viewpoint isn't necessarily wrong. It may be very valid. It usually is very valid. But it can create conflict, and it's how you deal with it. The goal of conflict is not to win it. Say that? The goal of conflict is not to win. The goal of conflict is to resolve. And... Um, Remember, forgiveness is an absolute requirement. So if somebody has offended you, if somebody has hurt you, forgiveness is a requirement. Just be, and then a, a rephrase from last week, that doesn't mean you have to trust them yet. You do have to forgive them. You don't have to trust them. Okay? Colossians 3, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Verse 13, bear with each other, put up with each other, 
Cut each other some slack and forgive. Whatever grievances you may have against one another. Why? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Jesus forgave you. Why in the world won't you and I forgive other people? If Jesus can forgive them, why can't I forgive them? Do I have higher standards than Jesus? If I do, I'm putting myself above Jesus. That's a role you don't want to be in because there's only one God and he doesn't need you to be God and withhold forgiveness. Okay, next week, Genesis chapter 44 and 45, titled The Revelation. All right, let's stand. I want to pray. We're going to have our closing song. Father, I thank you uh, for what we can learn from the story of Joseph as we uh, look at our passage today. Thank you, God, that you are patient with us, that you love us. God, may we walk humbly with you. May we practice truth in our relationships. May we be willing to forgive when we've been hurt and wronged. And God, just bring it to our attention when we start to shift blame to other people as if they're the problem and we sort of just look over our own responsibility. Help us to see our responsibility and to own up to it. For Jesus' sake, amen.